I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word, the book of Romans, chapter 8. We'll begin reading in verse 31 to the end of the chapter, Romans chapter 8. I'll be reading out the New King James Version this morning, as is my custom. God's Word declares, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all? How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we think of being condemned in our society today, we're often associating it with people looking down on us, frowning on us, or saying that they don't like what we do. And we have made that a matter of personal preference Uh, And we hear things like, well, don't judge me, as though I can move and act how I will, and you will have to accept it, and this is the politically correct manner of life that we have experiencing in our day. But this is not how the New Testament uses the word condemnation. This is not about opinions and preferences. This is not about political correctness. And therefore, when we say that there is no condemnation, we are not talking about your right to do as you please, not about your preferences and your idiosyncrasies that you think no one should uh, challenge you on or address you over, but rather something much more significant and much more severe. Paul asks this question of his readers. The question is a very simple one. Who is he who condemns? It is couched in the context really of talking about the benefits of our salvation, and we're going to spend a lot of time on that this morning. It is couched in a portion of Scripture dealing with trials and tribulations, dealing with the hardships of life, many of which, frankly, most of us here have never experienced, certainly not to the degree that Paul's talking about here, of the loss of significant things like property and liberty and life itself things that we as Americans are profoundly ignorant of. We think and we believe we know what that's going on and what it might be like, but largely it is foreign to us. 
So we come into this context where the author is trying to encourage the people of God that regardless of all the opposition that they encounter in their world, where many of them were in the slave community, most of them were not Roman citizens and were not given any of the rights of Roman citizens and therefore could be imprisoned for any reason really whatsoever. Their lives were in jeopardy almost always. Their property certainly was. That here are these believers living in that context with opposition not only from political entities and from the pluralism of Rome, of their gods, and viewed them as <laughs> atheists, believe it or not, um, all the way to the Jews who attacked them as heretics. We find that the church in its early years was under assault almost continually from one area or another. And so Paul wants to write to the Romans and, and establish and strengthen them that we can endure all of this and that no matter what they throw against us, what they can never do to us is condemn us. And this word condemnation is a very strong one, that they cannot do eternal, lasting damage to us. This is our condition. When we have this kind of salvation, what is it that can really come up against us? And as much as the world wants to throw at the believing community, the true believers, the fact is, is that those who are true followers of Jesus Christ will stand. And having done all, they will stand. Stand against what? Well, there are many tests. And while we have not been tested in our faith with beatings and arrests and loss of property and alienation from families, it is still necessary for us to understand that we are not condemned, that we might take our stand because it is certain that there is something we must stand against. And those of you who have heard me teach throughout Daniel and other passages know what I'm going to refer to, and that is what we stand against is the gradual decline of our faith. Gradual, not just in a lifespan, but in generations, as we have seen within the context of our liberty in this nation, a rubbing down of what Christianity really is, that we now have a thin, bare faith that has really no substance and really hides nothing. It covers nothing. Daniel uses the illustration of a cloth that is worn out. And he says that in the end times, that last generation on earth, that those generations, though that period of time that's, that the evil one, the man of sin, will wear out the saints. He won't attack them, he won't kill them, he won't slaughter them, he won't do any of that violence. He will simply wear you down. And so, yes, we are in need of this same passage, of this same encouragement, granted from a different kind of enemy and maybe a more insidious one because it is so subtle that we are easy to lose track of it and the necessity that is upon us to stand. And what is it that we take a stand on? And that's what I want to talk about this morning because we have so much to stand on. 
to stand against and to recognize that we are not under condemnation. No matter how much the assault is there, we still have the capacity to stand firm in our faith. Regardless of how worn out Christianity has become in the Western world, we can still take a stand. There is still opportunity. There is still strength. There is still the means to take a stand against being worn out by the man of sin, being worn down by this final empire on earth that Daniel talks about, this little horn that wears out the saints. We can still resist. We can be like the shoe, soles of the shoes of the people of Israel wandering in the desert, that though they wandered for 40 years, they never wore out. And this is what we find in this passage, in this encouragement, that we can be those who can go generationally and not be worn out. And brethren, I want you not to be worn out. I want you to recognize that the power of God is to keep soles from shoes and and threads that are of this world from ever wearing out. If he can do it in the desert for his people for 40 years, Physically, he can do it for us spiritually all our years. But we must found it properly. We cannot just say, I am in my will determined not to allow my faith to wear down because your will is not sufficient to the task. Your will is weak, fleshly, it is human. And so we must recognize that our condemnation isn't a matter of, our lack of condemnation, isn't a matter of political crisis, it's not a matter of us standing and demanding it as a right, but rather of recognizing it as a benefit that we possess and therefore must stand without ever being worn down. So we look into it. Let's go, Lord, in prayer before we get into our text. Lord God, we do thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and we marvel at the power that you have made available to us by the working of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that it might be at work for us this hour. That today is the day of salvation. But Lord, we also recognize that that same power will work against and condemn those who do not know you, who do not follow you, do not trust in you. And so, Lord, we are, Lord, we are also reminded this morning of our mission. We pray that both here in this service and as we leave here in our very lives, that that mission might take priority, might be preeminent in our thinking, in our actions, in our attitudes, in our reactions to people, in every conversation that we might see an opportunity to bring into that relationship, the message of deliverance from condemnation. Not as the world, but as your word cries. Give us that wisdom, Lord. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, a very simple task to simply declare that there is no one who can really condemn you. Our fear 
and the fear of Paul here, I think, it, when he deals with it with regard to the Judaizers in the earlier passages, uh, especially Romans 2 and 3, is that we start to get self-confident in that, that somehow the reason no one can condemn us is because we're really good people or that we're doing everything right. But I think you guys know Romans well enough to know that Paul has been adamant in establishing first that you are dirty, rotten sinners and that you can't do anything right. There's nothing in you that is pleasing to God that would move him to have to save you. But rather that you are deserving of judgment. You're deserving of death. You deserve it all. All of that is evil and, and wrong and bad you've committed and are guilty of, and therefore you're deserving of all the judgment that he summarizes in this word, condemns. So this is the condemnation that Paul speaks of here, not whether or not you are liked or disliked or whether someone disagrees with you, but whether or not you are accepted before God or under his hand of judgment. This is the question. And so this promise is not to everyone. This promise is to a select group of people, those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior, those who have chosen to receive him and follow after him. To these gives these promises. Why? Well, in God's eternal plan, he saw the sacrifice that it would take to cover your sin. The immensity of it, of the suffering of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He saw that. He saw the great need, and he could easily have just barely met the need, but he did far more than that. And he desired that all those who would receive his Son, Jesus Christ, because of the extensive sacrifice, would also receive extensive blessing. So while we're going to be dealing with a negative of condemnation, I want you to recognize that really we're talking about inheriting all the promises of God that are wide and deep, that are extensive and full. But within this is this declaration that no real charge comes against those who have trusted in Christ because we have been justified not by being good people, but by receiving that which Christ has done for us. It says that God has justified us. Who can condemn us? If God has declared us not guilty, who can then point the finger and say, you are guilty? Now, lest we think that that means I can live however I want, I think Paul was one of the authors of Scripture that goes overboard to explain to you, what do you think? You think you can sin more now that you've been saved? God forbid, he says in this book. God forbid. You think you can sin more just because you are recipients of grace? No. Rather, you have an opportunity to live righteously. And so this statement that who can condemn you is not about your life. It is not really about your behavior as though everything you do is right because you're a Christian. Rather, it is about your position, your standing. This is about a courtroom scene. And this word justification is a courtroom Word. You're being declared not guilty. Doesn't mean you aren't guilty. It means you're being declared not guilty. In fact, we all know we are guilty. We stand before God with the weight of it all, knowing that we must answer for it. And 
here comes a Savior to take our place. And so we have the opportunity to be able to be under this wonderful condition of having no one to condemn us. Wow. So powerful is the working of Christ The Revelation tells us that based upon his arrival in heaven, that one of the things that comes to an end is the accusation against the people of God by Satan. Satan is cast out of heaven upon the arrival of Christ. Revelation chapter 12. Even Satan himself can't condemn you. He doesn't have opportunity. He has no place in that heavenly realm any longer. We see it there prevalent in Job is the most obvious example. He is called the accuser of the brethren, but that was past tense. He is now no longer can do that because no one can accuse those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior. Not Satan himself. And so he has no access even to the courtroom. Satan has been cast out. Wouldn't that be wonderful to go to a courtroom and not no prosecutors are there. No witnesses are there. They're gone. Oh, that is Albuquerque's court. No, never mind. (laughs) Sorry, I had to throw that one in there. Right, Julie? (laughs) So, um, what a wonderful thing for the criminal, right? To show up at court and there's no prosecuting attorney, there's no victim, there's no witnesses against you. You get off scot-free. And this is what God offers you. Not that you are guiltless, You aren't condemned because someone has taken all of the blame for you and removed all the witnesses against you. Based upon what? Do we have no condemnation? Four things. And they build on each other throughout this verse. Four things, four very quick little clauses in here, and they're going to build on each other right through this verse. And in fact, there's going to be a little Greek words used to show that they build on each other. That we are going from one great thing to even a greater thing to a greater thing to the greatest thing. We are going to be building all the way through this. Not to minimize the first thing in the list, but to demonstrate that the first thing was really just the first. And it's not all that there is, but there's more. And more and more. This we study today because in in that list, of course, we're going to find what we are celebrating the resurrection on this Easter Sunday. So let's look at the four foundations that we are under no condemnation. In verse 34, who is he who condemns? Why can no one condemn you? Here we go. Because Christ was the one who died. He was the one who died. To condemn the believer, someone must be able to condemn the Christ. Very simply. That's what's necessary. To condemn the believer, you must condemn Christ because Christ is now in lieu of me in the standing courtroom of God. He is in my place. He is my propitiation. He has paid the price. He has met the requirements. He has satisfied the demands of God on my place. And so he has died. And we commemorated that 
um, Thursday evening here in this place as we looked at his that event in the midst of Passover. We considered its power and, and all that it provided. And yes, we talk about the blood of Christ as rightly we should, for it is that which cleanses us of our sin. And that is the beginning of the fast of the of the facts of our freedom from condemnation. Again, not that you have a right to live however you want without anyone pointing the finger and saying, stop that. Because you know I do that almost every Sunday. Yeah, stop doing these things because they're of the world and not of Christ. John says, if you love the world, love of the Father isn't in you. I mean, they were addressing these issues aplenty. But in the heavenly courtroom, for those who have placed themselves into Christ, the first facet that we talk about placing you into Christ is the placing you into his death, that there is that covering, that atonement. For we know that without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sins. And so your blood could be shed, but it's insufficient because you can be condemned. You've done wrong, every single one of you, even the youngest here today. Since we don't have junior church, I'll pick on you guys. You could be condemned if it was based upon your own merit. We could easily line up the witnesses to say, oh yeah, I remember her. She didn't obey her parents this time, that time. You know, the first one in lines would be your parents to do that, of course. Um, oh yeah, she wasn't the best friend. She lied. She did. He did this. He, he broke this. He lied about that. I mean, we're all condemnable. The reason in God's courtroom we are not condemned is because no one can accuse Christ. And it was him who died. He died in my place. And so any accusation that comes against me is diverted. And now I say, well, can you say the same thing of Jesus? Well, no. He didn't do anything wrong. Then that's what I'm standing behind. That's what I'm standing behind. I'm... Right here, and here's Jesus. He's the one who died. He paid that penalty, but you can't condemn him because there was no sin in him. And therefore, because he died, we can enjoy no condemnation for he has taken the penalty for our sin and because he had no sin to be condemned for, but he condemned himself by willingly submitting to death to take our condemnation. And so we stand behind him, uncondemned. Because the price has already been paid by one who no one can condemn. And this sinless sacrifice is the first wonder of our freedom from condemnation. Well, it gets better. Do you see the next phrase? It was Christ who died. And furthermore, and there... And within that word furthermore is a little Greek word that moves us not just onward as in some list, but upward. There's even more. And maybe the even more is maybe a little bit better. I say, oh, Pastor, you're saying there's something better than Christ's death on the cross? Yes. I'm saying it because the Bible says it. There is something better. And this is, when our study of Acts, remember our study in Acts? 
Well, what, what, kept, what did they keep saying? What did they keep saying? Well, they, over and over and over again, the apostles to their audience kept saying, You crucified him. Crucifixion was the act of men against an innocent one. And then they said, But God raised him from the dead. The resurrection is the act of God. It is necessarily greater. It is certainly of greater necessity. For many have died, but who has risen again? And so not only do we have the fact of that we are, have the blood of Christ covering our sin, but we also have the power of the resurrection that is furthermore. <laughs> he rose from the dead. It's just, it's just not the next thing that happened chronologically. It is a greater thing than his death was his resurrection. And this we celebrate today. For underneath that resurrection, we stand uncondemned. Death has no power over us. The song we're going to sing at the end will communicate that. It's kind of a weird closing number. It's not really an invitational. It's a declaration. That I believe this truth and I stand uncondemned and therefore Christ is risen. Because Christ is risen, we are even further without condemnation. Not just because my my sins are covered by his sacrifice, but even more so, I have a new life. We represent this in our baptism, right? We we call it a watery grave that you died with Christ and have been raised to new life. Well, I'm pretty sure every one of you are glad that it didn't just stop at you died with Christ and we held you underwater perpetually. How many of you are glad that you got raised to new life out of your baptismal waters? Please tell me you are glad. Wasn't it a lot better than going under? Yes. Was going under necessary? Certainly. I do not want to diminish the work of Christ on the cross. Never, ever. But this resurrection is superior to it. It is the work of God, whereby we have the power of God to have new life, eternal life. This is what it means to be have no condemnation. And so go ahead. You could kill this body. You can't end my life. You can try to make it miserable, but you can't take away my peace because it's not built on my circumstances. It's not built upon my physical senses It is built upon the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is built upon someone else. Go ahead, try to kill him. He's my Savior. You couldn't keep him in the ground. Satan couldn't keep him in the ground. No one could keep him. The guards couldn't do it. The Roman seal. Ooh, a Roman seal. Ooh, if you break the Roman seal, it's a death penalty. God didn't care. Big deal. Try. You already tried to put me to death. You already did. Didn't work. Didn't last. Our freedom from condemnation is not because of some political correctness. It's because of the power of the resurrection that is further more than the cross. And if your faith ends at the cross, your faith is useless. Yes, I said useless. If all your faith is is in the cross of Jesus Christ, your faith is useless. Paul writes this in Corinthians. 
if Christ died and didn't rise again, what a waste. We're, we're, we're hopeless. Just pity us because we're just idiots. If your, if your faith ends at the cross and doesn't have a resurrection in it, you are lost. You are in your sin. You are condemned already. You want no condemnation? It's going to require this of you. It's going to require you to trust in the resurrection. And we talked about that in the early service extensively, but we see that this is superior to, not just more recent than the cross. The furthermore here indicates that the resurrection is the superior work by which condemnation is removed from the child of God. And so our Lord died. Number two, our Lord also has risen. And number two, superior, superior work of God, raised from the dead. I still got you with me, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure all of you say, yeah, the resurrection, yeah, it's obvious. Better work, greater work, superior work than the death. And so also are the next two superior to the resurrection. Brace yourself. The next basis of our lack of condemnation is the fact that Christ is at the right hand of God, but I left out a little word, didn't I? What is the little word in English I left out? Even. I didn't read that one. Did you see it? It might be something different in your version. And again, we have another little Greek word to talk about that Paul has just raised the bar a little bit higher. I mean, the death of Christ is phenomenal that he shed his blood to cover my sin. The resurrection of Christ just blows your mind. Power over sin, power over death. Um, and, and it's almost unbelievable, hence all the apostles struggling with, oh, is this really happening? Even though I've touched it talked with it, watched it eat. Is the resurrection really real? Oh yes, it's real and powerful. But Christ did not just rise to conquer sin and death. He did it with an objective in mind. The historical event is substantial, no doubt about it. But look at what happened. He is even at the right hand of God. He has put himself in his ascension to heaven, and yes, the ascension that we often neglect. It is probably the most neglected act of Christ in the church today in terms of historical ministry, is the ascension of Christ. We don't even celebrate. Do you even know when the ascension happened? Have an idea? Maybe I'm going to have to read those Gospels again. See, when that ascension into heaven happened, we, we barely, it's a blip, barely a blip on our calendar, isn't it? Maybe we recognize. But the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father is an even, 
even better, better than the resurrection, is that he has taken that power and he has moved it to a place of supreme authority. Wow! We're not talking about a Lazarus that's walking around on earth and everyone can see him and says, wow, that's pretty phenomenal. He was dead for three days and stunk even. And, and here he is walking. No, we're not talking about that. We're going to talk about a resurrected one who has gone into the very place of God and at the right hand of God puts that resurrection power to work for you and I. This is why the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God is superior to the resurrection, even as the resurrection is superior to the crucifixion. For it is there that the power of the working of Christ, including the resurrection, is applied for you and I. If Christ never ascended to the right hand of the Father, that place of authority, then we would still be here struggling. Because in the courtroom we would still be condemned. Read it. See it. How often the ascension, that Christ at the right hand, is that which peels away all who want to point the finger and condemn us. They have no position, no standing. As I said, in Revelation, we find with the arrival of the sacrificed one into heaven, war in heaven's over. Boom! Why? They had the power of the blood applied. And hence, the ascension into heaven is critical and wondrous to our salvation, even more so than the resurrection. For now, the resurrection power is put in a place of authority, and it is made there for us. And so we do not just have the opportunity to walk around earth and endure a lot, um, because, well, I have this hope, which to us, hope means wishful thinking, and the Hebrew mind it didn't, and meant a sure confidence but I sure hope I get to heaven and maybe I'll muddle through all of this and our Christians walk around like this. Shame on you. You have an ascended Lord who is at the right hand of God and has applied all the power of both his sacrifice and his resurrection in that place of authority, in that courtroom, the one that matters. And this is why this little word, little Greek word, even... He even is at the right hand of God. Right now, notice it is the present tense. He is even there. Not was, not will be. He is there. We have a living Savior in the place of authority where all of his work and ministry um, takes the authority of God and makes it for our benefit to our value. To bring us no condemnation. And it is a sad state of the church that we have lost the great value of the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father. Maybe we'll try to fix it this year. Someone get out your calendar, figure out when the ascension is, and we'll celebrate it. I don't know how. We'll jump up and down. I'm not sure. I know. We'll bring a bunch of lawyers here, and we'll have an empty courtroom. No. Sorry, Kelly, I'm just picking on we got to figure out a way to celebrate because we've lost it. We've lost the ascension, and the ascension should be right up there, right up there with and above the resurrection, for is where the resurrection power is put into the place of authority. But we're not done. We've still got to go one up yet. Look at the rest of the verse. 
who makes intercession for us. And again, I skipped that little Greek word that is translated for you in the English, also. And these words, these three words that we see here in this, furthermore, even, also, each one takes the next step and demonstrates the excellence of that, even with respect to the others. And so Christ isn't at the right hand of the throne of God doing nothing. Isn't that great? Now, we have all had leaders who sat around in their place of authority and didn't exercise it, correct? We've all seen leaders do that. Um, Lazy supervisors, um, cowardly military people, um, foolish political people who get into authority and either abuse it or ignore it and don't exercise it like they could to do what is right. Our Lord isn't any of those things. He's not lazy. He's not abusive. He's not foolish. He doesn't ignore it. The one who died and rose again ascended to heaven and took the right hand of the throne of God, the place of authority in heaven. And then he did the extraordinary. He fought for your cause. Interceding for you, we often associate that with praying, but really what it means is that he has fought your cause there. And this is more than just a defense attorney. Because he's taken the place not only as your Attorney, but as your judge, and he is fighting for your cause. No, these are one of mine. This one is one of mine. This is my child. I died for them. I take responsibility for them. I am their interceder, your go between. And so you are not just in this standing, you have an active agent on your behalf in the heavenly realms. And because of this, there is no condemnation historically because of the work of Christ on the cross. There is no condemnation again historically because of the (laughs) resurrection and the power that is there that Paul talks on Philippians 3. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his sufferings. We don't like that last part, but um, there's power there, and then in the ascension of heaven, in that historical act where Christ takes the place of authority, but now we come into, the, into what he is doing actively, ever since then, continuously on our behalf, without ever resting, no sleep, no vacations, for all these years he's been up there interceding for you so that you are never condemned. No one can point the finger. No one can steal you or rob you of your salvation. No one can remove what Christ has put there. And because of its perpetualness, because of its constancy, because of its faithfulness, because of its action, we find it the working of the historical events. 
Oh, the three historical events, they're a wonder, aren't they? Aren't they a wonder that Jesus would die for you? For me? The resurrection, what a wonder. Changed history. Changed heaven's history. The ascension. Wow. Right into the realm of authority goes our Savior. The one who calls me friend. I call myself his follower. Guess where I'm going to follow him? Right to the places of authority. Right into the throne room. Where the Bible says I'll rule and reign with him. Yeah, wow. Those are biggies. But you know what? I can be uncondemned today and I can live the entirety of my life taking a stand for Christ against the opposition that I encounter because all of that historical power and awesomeness is currently being applied in the courtroom of God daily by my Savior who intercedes for me and says, oh, please help this boy to stand uncondemned to stand against all that everyone wants to throw at him. He can stand. And yes, we can stand and not let our clothes be worn out because we stand not on our own merits or our own will or our own determination. I stand because I have one in heaven interceding on my behalf. And so I can stand and I can stand against the world and say, I will have none of that in my life. Yes, I know it's the norm. I know everyone's doing it. I know that that's expected. But I can stand against it. I can recognize you're trying to wear down our faith. You're trying to make us look like, act like, talk like, think like the world. And I can take a stand against that because I have one in the heavenly places interceding on my behalf that is making all that historical work of Christ applied for me. And shame on us to think that we have no recourse but to simply bend over and take it from the man of sin. You have every recourse available to you. You have the recourse available to you. Christ in the heavenly realms, interceding for you. He's doing his part. He's interceding for you. And the expectation is very real there that there's no tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Let's... You stand in the love of Christ. And I don't care if the world is disgusted by me. I don't care if they want to imprison me. I don't care if they want to do anything. If they want to spit at me, if they want to laugh at me, who cares? I have a resurrected Lamb of God at the right hand of the throne of God working for me. Interceding, working for my behalf, fighting for me to stand. And if he's doing that, I'll do my part. And I will endure. I will do the part that God calls to, and I will share that message with others. There's no mistaking that in the morning, this morning, uh, I stopped every, almost everyone except for John, I stopped right before the power of the resurrection was transformed into a command. No, the command, there was a command to believe in John, but the power of the resurrection, even before the command to believe, was go tell everybody. Make disciples of the nations. 
Well, if you're not strong enough because you don't understand that Christ is interceding on your behalf at the powerful hand, right hand of God to take a stand, how are you going to take it a step further and actually communicate your stand to others and invite them to it? If we're drifting down the same stream that this world is drifting in, how can we ever invite them to Christ? It is time that we stood on the rock in the middle of the current and stood and said, no more. And maybe take a few steps upstream and claim a little higher ground. We've lost so much of what genuine Christianity looks like, sounds like, (laughs) is like, because the evil one has worn us down. And when you hold modern Western Christianity up, the fabric of it up into the light, you can see right through it because it has no substance. It's time to put some nap on your thread and stand. For this is the calling of God. Nothing can be taken away from us, for we are uncondemned. And so none of them can condemn us. Look at the list. Isn't it great? Life can't condemn us. Death can't condemn us. Angels, principalities, powers. What's now? What's future? Height, depth. Anything in all creation. Who can condemn you? Because to condemn you is to separate you from the love of God. Who can do it? No one. Nothing. Nothing can do it. Once we understand this fourfold massive foundation that we have, or we stand uncondemned. And so what do we care? What the world says. What do we care what we want? Why don't we care what our Savior desires? He desires us first of all to stand, and then to tell. Take your stand, and tell of the Savior who came. This is the evidence of his work in our life. And yes, we pray for those in places of persecution, and rightly so, for they endure much physically. And our opposition is so subtle, oh, that we would pray harder, that we would notice that we are worn out. Notice enough to go back to the cross and the empty tomb and that hill he ascended from, and right into the very throne room of God, and say, Lord, based upon what you have done, I will stand. Because you are there working and fighting my battle for me. How can I not choose your side in this affair? This is the power of what we celebrate today in the middle of this fourfold declaration of how our condemnation is removed, all built on the love of God for us. This will all be culminated equally. (laughs) We will share this testimony of these verses and at this I'll close. Barring the rapture happening in your lifetime, you will die. 
But unlike so many today that believe that if you die, that's just the end of everything, um, Jehovah's Witness among them, but a lot of other Christians now are inheriting that. That's just the end. There will be a resurrection. I say, all right, I get to be part of the resurrection. We're going to sing that. But you realize that all men will be resurrected, some to life and some to eternal judgment. All men will experience a resurrection. The Bible tells us that very clearly. So isn't it more important that you are resurrected into life, the throne room of God, brought into the presence of God, and not just to be there, but to be there actively engaged? Even better. That's why we want to get to heaven with our, with our crowns in place so that we can use them and employ them for worship for all eternity. And that's why, yes, your Christian works matter. Get rid of the wood, hay, and stubble that burns up and invest yourself in gold, silver, and precious stones that aren't so easily destroyed. For these are the mechanisms that you'll be using, the, the tools that you'll have to worship him, be actively in the throne room of God. Each one is superior They're all founded on Christ. So we will resurrect. We will resurrect to an active life of worship and service that will bring joy to no end. So not only are we stand uncondemned, we stand full of promise. And this we celebrate today. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word. And we do pray that you might continue to work it by your spirit in our hearts and minds over the course of this day and days to come that we might bring to memory your truth and let it fashion us into your image. Let it conform us Let it mold us, which means we need to be changeable and not resist you. And Lord, we pray that you might find us tenderhearted. We thank you so much that you died for us, that you conquered sin and death for us, that you rose and ascended into the heavenly realms and took that place of authority for us and that you are interceding today for us. We cannot and will not cease to give you praise for all of this. We know the greatest praise is for us to be obedient to you. Help us in that too, Lord. We thank you for your spirit to direct us not only into your truth but into its application in our lives. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.